0: CASE FOUR, SECRET WORSHIP, PART ONE, OF JOHN SILENCE. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Davidson. JOHN SILENCE by Algernon Blackwood. CASE FOUR, PART ONE, SECRET WORSHIP. Harris, the silk merchant, was in South Germany on his way home from a business trip, when the idea came to him suddenly that he would take the mountain railway from Strasbourg and run down to revisit his old school after an interval of something more than thirty years. And it was to this chance impulse of the junior partner in Harris Brothers of St. Paul's Churchyard, that John Silence owed one of the most curious cases of his whole experience for at that very moment he happened to be tramping these same mountains with a holiday knapsack and from different points of the compass the two men were actually converging towards the same inn now deep down in the heart that for thirty years had been concerned chiefly with the profitable buying and selling of silk this school had left the imprint of its peculiar influence and though perhaps unknown to harris had strongly colored the whole of his subsequent existence it belonged to the deeply religious life of a small protestant community which is unnecessary to specify and his father had sent him there at the age of fifteen partly because he would learn the german requisite for the conduct of the silk business and partly because the discipline was strict, and discipline was what his soul and body needed just then, more than anything else. The life, indeed, had proved exceedingly severe, and young Harris benefited accordingly, for though corporal punishment was unknown, there was a system of mental and spiritual correction which somehow made the soul stand proudly erect to receive it, while it struck at the very root of the fault, and taught the boy that his character was being cleaned and strengthened, and that he was not merely being tortured in a kind of personal revenge. That was over thirty years ago, when he was a dreamy and impressionable youth of fifteen, and now as the train climbed slowly up the winding mountain gorges his mind travelled back somewhat lovingly over the intervening period and forgotten details rose vividly again before him out of the shadows the life there had been very wonderful it seemed to him in that remote mountain village Protected from the tumults of the world by the love and worship of the devout brotherhood that ministered to the needs of some hundred boys from every country in Europe. Sharply the scenes came back to him. He smelt again the long stone corridors, the hot pine-wood rooms where the sultry hours of summer study were passed with bees droning through open windows in the sunshine and German characters struggling in the mind with dreams of English lawns, and then the sudden awful cry of the master in German, harris stand up, you sleep, and he recalled the dreadful standing, motionless for an hour, book in hand, while the knees felt like wax, and the head grew heavier than a cannonball. The very smell of the cooking came back to him, the daily sauerkraut, the watery chocolate on Sundays, the flavor of the stringy meat served twice a week at Mittagessen, And he smiled to think again of the half-rations that was the punishment for speaking English. The very odor of the milk bowls, the hot sweet aroma that rose from the soaking peasant bread at the six o'clock breakfast, came back to him very pungently and he saw the huge Speisesaal, with the hundred boys in their school uniform, all eating sleepily in silence, gulping down the coarse bread and scalding milk, in terror of the bell that would presently cut them short, and at the far end where the masters sat, he saw the narrow slit windows of the vistas enticing field and forest beyond. And this in turn made him think of the great barn-like room on the top floor where all slept together in wooden cots, and he heard in memory the clamor of the cruel bell that woke them on winter mornings at five o'clock, and summoned them to the stone flag, Vashkammer, where boys and masters alike, after scanty and icy washing, dressed in complete silence. From this his mind passed swiftly with vivid picture thoughts to other things, and with a passing shiver he remembered how the loneliness of never being alone had eaten into him, and how everything—work, meals, sleep, walks, leisure—was done with his division of twenty other boys, and under the eyes of at least two masters. The only solitude was by asking for half an hour's practice in the cell-like music-rooms, and Harris smiled to himself as he recalled the zeal of his violin studies. Then, as the train puffed laboriously through the great pine forests that cover these mountains with a giant carpet of velvet, he found the pleasanter layers of memory giving up their dread. And he recalled with admiration the kindness of the masters, whom all addressed as brother, and marveled afresh at their devotion in burying themselves for years in such a place, only to leave it, in most cases, for the still rougher life of missionaries in the wild places of the world. He thought once more of the still religious atmosphere that hung over the little forest community like a veil barring the distressful world, of the picturesque ceremonies at Easter, Christmas, and New Year, of the numerous feast days and charming little festivals. The Besher Fest, in particular, came back to him, the Feast of Gifts at Christmas, when the entire community paired off and gave presents, many of which had taken weeks to make, or the savings of many days to purchase and then he saw the midnight ceremony in the church at New Year, with the smiling face of the prediger in the pulpit, the village preacher who, on the last night of the old year, saw in the empty gallery beyond the organ loft the faces of all who were to die in the ensuing twelve months, and who at last recognized himself among them. And in the very middle of his sermon, Passed into a state of rapt ecstasy and burst into a torrent of praise. Thickly the memories crowded upon him the picture of the small village dreaming its unselfish life on the mountain tops, clean, wholesome, simple, searching vigorously for its God, and training hundreds of boys in the grand way. Rose up in his mind with all the power of an obsession. He felt once more the old mystical enthusiasm. Deeper than the sea and more wonderful than the stars, he heard again the winds sighing from leagues of forest over the red roofs in the moonlight. He heard the brothers' voices talking of the things beyond this life as though they had actually experienced them in the body and as he sat in the jolting train a spirit of unutterable longing passed over his seared and tired soul, stirring in the depths of him a sea of emotions that he thought had long since frozen into immobility. And the contrast pained him, the idealistic dreamer then, the man of business now, so that a spirit of unworldly peace and beauty, known only to the soul in meditation, laid its feathered finger upon his heart, moving strangely the surface of the waters. Harris shivered a little and looked out of the window of his empty carriage. The train had long passed Hornburg, and far below the streams tumbled in white foam down the limestone rocks. In front of him, dome upon dome of wooded mountain stood against the sky. It was October, and the air was cool and sharp, wood smoke and damp moss exquisitely mingled in it with the subtle odors of the pines. Overhead, between the tips of the highest firs, he saw the first stars peeping, and the sky was a clean, pale amethyst. It seemed exactly the color all those memories clothe themselves with in his mind. He leaned back in his corner and sighed. He was a heavy man, and he had not known sentiment for years. He was a big man, and it took much to move him, literally and figuratively. He was a man in whom the dreams of God that haunt the soul in youth though overlaid by the scum that gathers in the fight for money, had not, as with the majority, utterly died the death. He came back to his little neglected pocket of the years, where so much fine gold had collected and laid undisturbed, with all his semi-spiritual emotions a-quiver, and as he watched the mountaintops come nearer, and smelt the forgotten odors of his boyhood. Something melted on the surface of his soul and left him sensitive to a degree he had not known since. Thirty years before, he had lived here with his dreams, his conflicts, and his youthful suffering. A thrill ran through him as the train stopped with a jolt at a tiny station and he saw the name in large black lettering on the gray stone building, and below it the number of meters it stood above the level of the sea. "'The highest point on the line,' he exclaimed. "'How well I remember it. "'Summerau, Summer Meadow. "'The very next station is mine.' And as the train ran downhill with brakes on and steam shut off, He put his head out of the window, and one by one saw the old, familiar landmarks in the dusk. They stared at him like dead faces in a dream. Queer, sharp feelings, half poignant, half sweet, stirred in his heart. There's the hot white road that we walked along so often, with the two brooder always at our heels, he thought and there by jove is the turn through the forest to de galgen the stone gallows where they hang the witches in olden days he smiled a little as the train sped past and there's the copse where the lilies of the valley powdered the ground in spring and i swear he put his head out with a sudden impulse if that's not the very clearing where Calam, the french boy chased the swallowtail with me and Bruder Paul gave us half rations for leaving the road without permission and for shouting in our mother tongues. Betty laughed again, as the memories came back with a rush, flooding his mind with vivid detail. The train stopped, and he stood on the gray gravel platform like a man in a dream. It seemed half a century since he had last waited there with corded wooden boxes and got into the train for Strasbourg and home after the two years' exile. Time dropped from him like an old garment, and he felt like a boy again. Only things looked so much smaller than his memory of them. Shrunk and dwindled they look. and the distances seemed on a curiously smaller scale. He made his way across the road to the little ghast-house and as he went, faces and figures of former schoolfellows—German, Swiss, Italian, French, Russian—slipped out of the shadowy woods and silently accompanied him. They flitted by his side, raising their eyes questioningly, sadly, to his. But their names he had forgotten. Some of the brothers, too, came with him— and most of these he remembered by name. Bruder Brust, Bruder Pegel, Bruder Schliemann, and the bearded face of the old preacher who had seen himself in the haunted gallery of those about to die, Bruder Geisen. The dark forest lay all about him like a sea that any moment might rush with velvet waves upon the scene and sweep all the faces away. The air was cool and wonderfully fragrant, but with every perfumed breath came also a pallid memory. Yet in spite of the underlying sadness, inseparable from such an experience, it was all very interesting and held a pleasure particularly its own, so that Harris engaged his room and ordered supper, feeling well pleased with himself and intending to walk up to the school that very evening it stood in the centre of the community's village some four miles distant through the forest and he now recollected for the first time that this little protestant settlement dwelt isolated in a section of the country that was otherwise catholic crucifixes and shrines surrounding the clearing like the sentries of a beleaguering army Once beyond the square of the village, with its few acres of field and orchard, the forest crowded up in solid phalanxes, and beyond the rim of trees began the country that was ruled by the priests of another faith. He vaguely remembered, too, that the Catholics had shown sometimes a certain hostility towards the little Protestant oasis that flourished so quietly and benignly in their midst. He had forgotten this, how trumpery it all seemed now with his wide experience of life and his knowledge of other countries and the great outside world. It was like stepping back not thirty years, but three hundred. There were only two others besides himself at supper. One of them, a bearded, middle-aged man in tweeds, sat by himself at the far end and Harris kept out of his way because he was English. He feared he might be in business, possibly even in the silk business, and that he would perhaps talk on the subject. The other traveler, however, was a Catholic priest. He was a little man who ate his salad with a knife, yet so gently that it was almost inoffensive and it was the sight of the cloth that recalled his memory of the old antagonism. Harris mentioned by way of conversation the object of his sentimental journey, and the priest looked up sharply at him with raised eyebrows, and an expression of surprise and suspicion that somehow piqued him. He ascribed it to his difference of belief. "'Yes,' went on the silk merchant, pleased to talk of what his mind was so full and it was a curious experience for an English boy to be dropped down into a school of a hundred foreigners. I well remember the loneliness and intolerable Heimweh of it at first. His German was very fluent. The priest opposite looked up from his cold veal and potato salad and smiled. It was a nice face. He explained quietly that he did not belong here, but was making a tour of the parishes of Württemberg and Baden. It was a strict life, added Harris. We English, I remember, used to call it leben,' prison life. The face of the other, for some unaccountable reason, darkened. After a slight pause, and more by way of politeness than because he wished to continue the subject, he said quietly, It was a flourishing school in those days, of course. Afterwards I have heard he shrugged his shoulders slightly, and the odd look—it almost seemed a look of alarm—came back into his eyes. The sentence remained unfinished. Something in the tone of the man seemed to his listener uncalled for, in a sense reproachful, singular, Harris bridled in spite of himself. "'It has changed?' he asked. "'I can hardly believe—' "'You have not heard then?' observed the priest, gently making a gesture, as though to cross himself, but not actually completing it. "'You have not heard what happened there before it was abandoned?' It was very childish, of course, and perhaps he was overtired and overwrought in some way, but the words and manner of the little priest seemed to him so offensive, so disproportionately offensive, that he hardly noticed the concluding sentence. He recalled the old bitterness and the old antagonism, and for a moment he lost his temper. "'Nonsense!' he interrupted with a forced laugh. "'Unsin, you must forgive me for contradicting you, but I was a pupil there myself. I was at school there. There was no place like it. I cannot believe that anything serious could have happened to to take away its character. The devotion of the brothers would be difficult to equal anywhere.' he broke off suddenly realizing that his voice had been raised unduly and that the man at the far end of the table might understand german and at the same moment he looked up and saw that this individual's eyes were fixed upon his face intently they were peculiarly bright also they were rather wonderful eyes and the way they met his own served in some way he could not understand to convey both a reproach and a warning. The whole face of the stranger, indeed, made a vivid impression upon him, for it was a face he now noticed for the first time in whose presence one would not unwillingly have said or done anything unworthy. Harris could not explain to himself how it was that he had not become conscious sooner of its presence but he could have bitten off his tongue for having so far forgotten himself. The little priest lapped into silence. Only once, he said, looking up and speaking in a low voice that was not intended to be overheard, but that evidently was overheard. You will find it different. Presently he rose and left the table with a polite bow that included both the others. And after him from the far end rose also the figure in the tweed suit leaving harris by himself end of case 4 part 1 recording by kevin davidson www.blogordie.com